Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, two weeks after the airstrikes commenced on ISIS, is the strategy working? Is Ebola truly a national security threat? Back at the Supreme Court, the Supremes reconvene but pivot on gay marriage. Why did the Supreme Court punt on the issue? And finally, is Leon Panetta's new book a bestseller on the Republicans' must-read list? That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political radio talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as I do every Tuesday, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman Justin, Al. Justin, good afternoon. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and floor, former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. And directly across the table, my 12 o'clock, she is the former General Counsel to the House Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as General Counsel, to the Maritime Administration, she is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my one, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, who's last served, last count, four presidents. He's longtime Senate staff for Washington Insider and a very handsome and distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Go Nationals. Yes, please. And to my right, ironically, he is the Bar Certified Attorney here in D.C. and longtime Democratic political operative. He is Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin. Glad to be here. We have got a great show for you. A lot of stuff to cover this weekend. By the way, if you want to join, if you feel like you want to join the conversation, if you want to give your comments in, you can call us toll-free, 877-662-3713, or you can send your comments via Twitter, at BackroomPolitics. We're going to start off this week as we have for the the past month. Again, ISIS at the top of the news line. Right now, we've been two weeks, 14 days into the airstrikes that President Obama announced on ISIS in both Syria and additional airstrikes in Iraq. Uh, the question now is, has this strategy been working? We just heard yesterday that the Department of Justice had stopped a possible ISIS recruit at O'Hare Airport trying to board a plane going to Syria, trying to get in and, according to his own statements, fight for ISIS. Let's go to the bigger question. Uh, start Alan Moore. We're two weeks in. It doesn't seem like ISIS is retreating at all. In fact, we just found that they've t- 
taken Fallujah, and there's now black flags flying on the border of Turkey. It, are the airstrikes working? Well, <laughs> they're they're killing people and they're destroying stuff, um, it, just as we assumed they would and expected they would. But the the enemy forces are in the tens of thousands. They're all over the place. They can hide. They can run. They can sneak around. They can embed in in uh, in communities. Eventually, we're going to have to find some people somewhere who will go in on the ground and clean up after all the bombing. Having said that, they're they're running around. They're changing their tactics. Um, the, the real question is, and they're also continuing to kill people uh, on on video. The question the question is, although the killing, the beheading of a, of 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 some uh, some journalists, Western journalists, including the British journalist last week, got the attention and the adrenaline pumping, um, and everyone has thought, boy, they sure misjudged us. I'm not sure they misjudged us. I think that maybe they wanted to provoke the, the, the otherwise sleeping giant because they know that we don't all we, we haven't shown all the staying power that uh, that we might have, and as long as we tie our hands behind our backs in terms of all the things you really need to beat an enemy like this, um, I'm not sure, but what. Uh, uh, we're giving them a little bit of what they expected and don't mind. But but Bob Hines, you know we we've got an airstrike war going against ISIS. However, if you watch some of the talking heads and some of the pundits that we've seen along the media lines, we've seen them come back and say you cannot beat ISIS in the air. The Obama administration's gone all in on this air campaign. How long do we have to go before we realize, hey, wait a minute, this air campaign may not be the right answer? The military, the Pentagon, had known this from the beginning. You cannot fight a war from the air only. You have to put people, whether your own or someone else's team, in there fighting them and taking them out. And as long as we are not doing that, we will uh, we will not stop ISIS. We could will probably be able to do them a great deal of damage. But if you're going to to, to re- remove ISA as a political and military operation in the Middle East, you're going to have to find somebody, put soldiers on the ground, face them face-to-face, and get rid of them. Congressman Al. I, I, I want to do a John McLaughlin of my own here. <laughs> the answer is, it's too soon to tell. We get so impatient. This has been going on, you said, for a month. Well, you can't tell how about anything is going to work out in a month. Uh, so I think that it's premature to decide that this is uh, great or this is terrible or if it or it's weak meat. Denise Krupp. I'll give you a date, one month. We're one month from the election. And I would put money down that probably two to three days after the election, there will be conversations about having the vote on the House side, talking about you know putting troops on the ground. And at that point in time, the president's going to say, you know, I've been given a vote. I think this is what I'm going to do. But I'm, 
I would say anywhere between month, one month and five weeks. That's when we start seeing troops on the ground. Jan Lebner. This president is, is not going to go out of his way to put boots on the ground, even with an authorization from Congress. And conceding the point to Alan that there are some advisors on the ground in Iraq already, so technically they are boots on the ground. However, actual actual combat uh, troops uh, put on the ground. It's just not going to happen. ISIS is, or ISIL, or SCUM, as Alan has chosen to call it, um, they're movement, and they're going to be around for a little while. Uh, we are going to continue to bomb them. Uh, the, the, the Turks and the, the Iraqis and other people in the region are more than welcome to put their own soldiers, their own military out there on the front lines because it is literally their own front line to, to fight these people. Uh, our, our airstrikes were prompted and goaded by these, these, these horrific beheadings, and and ISIL got exactly what they wanted. They, they, they sort of woke the sleeping giant, and they get to claim to have punched the uh, United States in the nose and also punched Britain in the nose, which is exactly what they wanted. So within their scope of influence, they seem like they've gotten the attention of the world. Denise Krupp. You're right. They did get the attention of the world, and we're going to be responding with troops on the ground. That's the only way this happens. You cannot win this war via airstrike. That's it. I mean, it's just not physically We possible. can't win this war with boots on the ground. Right. But Al- we're going to be putting boots on the ground. Alan Moore. <laughs> I want to agree with both to, to, to an extent. We can't <laughs> win this without boots on the ground, but I don't think it's going to be American boots in a combat role. It's as... as, as uh, as Tony Blinken, the Deputy National Security Advisor, said on TV recently, we're, we, have no, we are not going to send in an invasion force. We've got guys there. We've got about 1,500. We'll get to 2,000, maybe to 3,000. You can't succeed. But the two countries are also different. In Iraq, you've got, you've got a Shiite-leaning military responsive to the, the, the national government. You've got Kurds in the north who want to protect their area and will fight for it. And you've got Sunnis in the the West who joined together a few years ago in in working with the Americans. What you don't have is anybody to go, and and I think there's a decent chance that those three forces working in conjunction sort of in their own areas, will be able to provide some of those boots that we're talking about, along with all this uh, this superior air force. What we don't have is are anybody who's willing to go into Syria. Um, so there, you know, we're going to train the, these forces, and that's going to take six months, and it's a relatively small number, and they're not combat but, ready. Alan, let me just, just jump in here real quick. I, I mean... You listen to David Schnecker, who's director for the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Uh, Schenker says, quote, we have not ostensibly downgraded the capability of the organization, meaning ISIS. We have put them on notice that we will target them, but we have not, present, we have not prevented the movement of the offensive of ISIS. That's a pretty damning attack on the strategy that we're using right now. We, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that if the experts on Near East policy are saying, look, you can't stop them. They're going to continue border smuggling. They're going to continue 
their operation on the ground, the airstrikes can't get rid of it. I, I won't repeat myself, but I stand by what I said before I was interrupted. Okay, fine. <laughs> Denise Trump. Let's go play high politics. In one month, we have the elections. We have 2016. Now everybody starts looking. Or sorry, we have 2014. Now we start looking to 2016. Wes Clark just came out with a new book. He is a strong talk on the Democratic side, talking about military. You have Jim Webb. You have Hillary Clinton that also wants to talk about her bona fides. And they're going to start talking, and they're going to be starting to put pressure on the president because one of the weaknesses of the Democratic Party is our fear that we don't seem as strong on homeland and national security as the Republicans. And the Republicans know that, and the Republicans are going to watch while we start, you know, talking and talking, and what are we going to do? And at some point, we're going to be putting feet down on the ground because they're afraid of what the Republicans are going to say. And the Republicans, and that's why I'm really curious to see which Republican comes out as the lead for the president, if it's going to be you know, Romney, if it's going to be Rand Paul, if it's going to be... Um, Chris Christie. Chris Christie. I mean, Chris Christie's already shown that he will put the National Guard out. Will the other two, and what will they say, and how will what they say drive the Dems to put pressure on Obama? I mean, it's convoluted, but that's what's about to happen. But it, but it seems to me also that there's also a question of the right intelligence flowing in executing the strategy. We had uh, Dr. Phillips uh, from Columbia University, David Phillips was talking on NBC saying, you know, they've got to intensify the airstrikes, not maintain and they've got to focus perhaps on, like he brings up an example, the hills uh, on the south side of Kobani. If, and his quote is, if Kobani fails, there will be a genocide of huge proportions. Tens of thousands of people will be beheaded. And ISIS will be emboldened to think that they can do whatever they want, no matter what President Obama says. Bob Hines? Well, right now, as we sit here, Kobani is, looks like it may well fall. And have exactly what you what you just said. And we have airstrikes all over the place, and it doesn't stop ISIS. The fact of the matter is, unless you have soldiers from someplace standing there on the ground and fighting ISIS face to face, you're not going to win this war. And we better start re recognizing if we wait. And I think we might. I think Denise may be right that, we, that maybe after the election, the president will change his view. But the fact of the matter is, if you wait another five weeks, I mean, who knows where ISIL will be? You know, Dan Lipner, we're looking at the airstrikes, and the idea behind the airstrikes in the initial form was the idea that we'll take out their infrastructure. We're also going to take out their money supply by hitting the refineries and take out their 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 primary routes for border smuggling of this black market material that they're selling. But there's two things here. One, uh, the smuggling is only one way that ISIS is gaining money. They've got tremendous money flow coming in through all routes. On top of the fact, even the U.S. Treasury admits that they don't have any hard figures as far as how much money they do have and what they have access to. And even if these airstrikes have had any effect on stopping the flow of money, which is what they need to continue their assaults. Well, what they need is both money and manpower. And they, aren't they getting both? Well, let's focus. Well, one than the other. So the 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 money we we have an idea about, and that's that's the oil. This is the fact that they were able to take a few cities that included Iraqi national banks that fairly well funded them as a terrorist organization 
for a good period of time. The manpower is also part of this. And as, no, as you noted at the, top, at the top of this portion, that Americans want to go join ISIL. Now, why people want to go join this group is a question. That they are clearly horrific and evil. That being said, that is clearly not what is being seen on the other side. They're seeing this as a clash of cultures, of East versus West, or that this fight is being handled in such a way that it's not winnable with guns alone or boots on the ground. We had plenty of boots on the ground for the last 11 years in Iraq. This is not changing hearts and minds. We really want to solve it. It is something larger. We do this wrong all the time, and the definition of insanity is going in with bombs every time and surprises we, that we keep getting surprised that each time we do that, that we are not beloved by the people we are bombing. Alan Moore, is this, a, is this a matter of we need to find more friends in Syria and Iraq, and can we find those people, and do they really exist? Well, we <laughs> remember when we started the, the bombing runs, we went in with five Middle Eastern partners. That was not a given, and it was unusual that we had some, I mean, it was not, given the, the fights within Islam, it wasn't a, a, a complete and total surprise, but it still took some courage. Uh, what will take a lot more courage is for some of these partner governments, these coalition partners, to, to bring fighting forces in. We've made it very clear in putting the coalition together that we're not going to bring combat troops into the enterprise. And I think it's going to be a good long time before we do that, if, if we ever do it. And if we do, it'll start with more people being embedded with foreign forces. As I said before, there are some foreign forces that are gearing up and are going to have to be the, the guys, particularly inside Iraq. Finding people to go into Syria is a different matter, and finding partner coalition governments willing to send their own troops in, that's a, that's a different matter as well. Um, but we need guys on the ground, no question about it, to, to, to succeed. And there's no guarantee of success if we know anything, as Dan says, we ought to know that um, after 11 years of, of occasional good results and lots of failure. Um, but uh, at the same time, I think that the, the, the momentum had turned and, and the politics inside America had turned to the point of saying, we have to do something. And the beheadings had something to do with that. What, I, what is not at all clear to me, though, speaking to, to Denise's point earlier, is after the elections, whether the, whether the body politic is going to say, yeah, let's, let's send troops back in. I don't see that. I see support for air raids, uh, bombing, drones. I don't see support for, uh, for a larger force. And I don't see that emerging almost no matter what they do. On but that. on that topic, though, Denise Krupp, we heard late last week through several news sources that, in fact, Turkey was now looking to engage. And they've got a bigger issue now with the establishment of ISIS on the border of Syria and Turkey now. But at the same time, Turkey's kind of a reluctant partner 
in this? How far do they have to be engaged or how far will they have to be pushed before they engage in this war? Well, clearly our relationship with Turkey is um, sensitive to the point where our vice president has to apologize. And, and to me, that, that was very strange because I, I can't imagine Joe Biden's lost hearing. Um, sometimes we all pick up certain things, but for him to have to publicly apologize to the president, I think I heard what I thought I heard, but apparently I didn't hear what I thought I heard. So I apologize for saying what I said. And it, 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 to me, this is, wait a second, what is Turkey promising and, and what are we giving them to at least hold our hand? You know, so that, that's concerning to me here in the United States, but it also demonstrates to me that Turkey is in a very precarious situation. You know, Dan talked about how ISIL is right on their borders. Yeah, they are right on their borders. And Ergodon doesn't exactly have the complete support of everybody in this country. I mean, there had been folks that were trying to overturn him and pull him out for these past several um, election cycles. It didn't happen. But he doesn't have everybody, and he knows that, and he's in a precarious situation politically of what he does. Bob Hines. The Turks right now are sitting literally within a couple of hundred yards of the border with their armored equipment and everything else and uh, watching the ISIP folks overtake uh, Kabana, which is, and, and apparently there'll be a, a lot of a uh, lot of lives lost among the locals of, in Kabana. And it looks to me like, you know, it's, 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 they're, they're not, right now, the Turks are not willing to, to do anything except man their own border. That's all they're doing. They're not. They're not going to take. They're not taking one shot at, 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 at ISIS at this point. Not one. Congressman Al, though, we're starting to see a lot of Obama supporters on the Hill start to question, in fact, the strategy, the approach, and the execution of certain military actions by this administration. Are we going to see further landslide from supporting the president in this to? questioning the actual objectives that they're trying to accomplish in all this? Well, strike the word landslide, and I'll say yes. <clears throat> I think you'll see movement away. I think it will be uh, not not an avalanche, but uh, I think that uh, the president has disappointed his Democratic supporters in a variety of fields, and this is one which I think has got a little more volatility to it than the others. And I, I think you're going to see some people publicly following Leon Panetta. And, and we'll get to that later in the show. I, I know, but I think you'll see you'll see more Democrats going there. Is, is, this, is this a turning point for the Obama administration? I mean, you know, second terms are always a little bit tricky, usually full of minefields for an incumbent president. But... This one seems to be extraordinarily tricky for the Obama administration. A lot of questions on leadership and his ability to manage military strikes. Well, Dan Lipner. I, I'm a little hesitant to call it a turning point. That would suggest things have been going gloriously prior to this. <laughs> um, Is this a fork in the road for the president? A, a fork in the road. The president happens to be present uh, and the tip of the spear for an American public that is incredibly frustrated. We are, we are, the American public is frustrated because war weary for having spent billions of dollars in a region to solve problems and we can, without going too far into it, what got us into it, but it clearly didn't resolve anything with what, uh, in Iraq and now to be pulled back into the region again 
after all of this time. So the, the public's stomach is not there to put more boots on the ground. But the question is, what do we do? And at the moment, the only, it, the only thing we have is a hammer to go after any of these problems in the region. And if that is the case, then the president's only tool is the military. And nobody wants to do that. So the frustration is what's boiling up. Uh, Alan Moore, is there even a divide within the administration as far as the right approach, the right message, and what's getting out? Denise referred to the slight gap that uh, Vice President Joe Biden put out. I mean, granted, anytime Joe Biden talks, you roll tape, you know he's going to say something good. But is there a divide, do you think, inside the administration that might be causing some of the problems? I hope there's a divide. I think there's all, almost always a divide. You want debate inside an administration. Uh, we're going to talk about Panetta. We've heard from Hillary Clinton. We've heard from former Defense Secretary Bob Gates, all in some of the same subjects. And and so we we know that, that there's been very high-level uh, divisions in the past. Having said that, presidents have to make hard calls, and and they make the calls for whatever reason they want. They hear sometimes it's leaning towards the political, sometimes it's leaning towards the the military, sometimes it's leaning towards whatever their instinct is. Uh, sometimes you know they're 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 hearing hearing from the public. But the point is, you want a lot of different voices. Um, this president found himself in a position he really did not want to be in, which was, I have to do something because the American people are demanding it and, and U.S. interests require it. I think he got to that point. Um, and as, as, as Dan said, though, he didn't, have a lot of, he didn't have a lot of arrows in the quiver. He, he had this big hammer. And so you, you take the hammer out, you try to find some coalition partners. And you try to figure out how to develop some kind of ground force that that would only minimally include the U.S. And these are all constraining uh, elements of your decision process. Dan Lipner. Well, but on that point, with the president's kind of out there alone, there are several there are voices fluttering around in Congress suggesting things, but nobody's really put pen to paper as far as what the actual costs of these decisions are. And I mean costs as in dollars of the weapons we use and costs of the military men and women that are on the ground that will potentially be lost for this conflict. A really responsible conversation on this issue, which, by the way, Congress has not had, would be to engage the American people in that conversation. What are we willing to pay in lives and money to actually confront ISIS? And I certain nobody wants to have that conversation to the decent point before the before the election. And I want to jump in. There's breaking news right now on CNN. CNN is reporting that UK authorities apparently have thwarted a terror plot. Four individuals have been arrested in London. We'll get more details on that as they come in. But uh, Congressman Al, going off of Dan's point, when we talk about the smart conversation that Congress needs to have. Is this truly a necessity right now, or did they give the president the authority before they left for recess real early to say, we support you, go do what you've got to do, take out ISIS? Well, Dan and I need to get off in a corner and, and uh, define conversation. I would argue that in 
in my years of watching Congress and when I was there, uh, I only remember one thing that was ever could, could be considered a conversation. And that was the vote on whether or not we uh, would uh, would go into uh, uh, against Iraq. After they invaded Kuwait. After they, yeah. It's the Kuwait thing. And the reason that was a conversation was that we were voting and we were going to, and what we voted was going to happen right away. And everybody knew there was a considerable chance that whatever their view was, they could be wrong. And so everybody was, was very quiet about how they asserted that they, not that they didn't assert it strongly, but they, they weren't throwing brickbats at each other because they wanted to be careful of how they did it. Otherwise, I have never seen a conversation go on in Congress. It's all debate. And if that's what uh, what you're saying, I, then I agree with you. But uh, you may not get a conversation out Dan Lipner, 30 seconds. I'll take a debate. I'll take a vote. I'll take the president demanding both of them. That, that is what leadership is. I'm not, I'm not talking about leadership in the region. I'm just talking about leadership in the country politically. Force the conversation. Interesting point. Uh, obviously, this is something we're going to be talking about here for a while to come. We'll keep an eye on the situation. When we come back, though, we're going to talk about the other front, the other war that we're dealing with here in America. That's the war on Ebola. Is the, is the government putting out too much information? Are they creating a fear storm in the U.S. and around the globe? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250 from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We're going to shift strategies right now and talk about a new war on the domestic front. That is the war on Ebola. The question is, is Ebola truly a national security threat, as has been alluded by a couple of people inside the administration, including President Obama, Congressman Al? You got to follow the doctors on this. I, I wouldn't say you got to follow the president on it, but you got to follow the doctors. And frankly, uh, th- there aren't uh, a half a dozen laymen in this country that have any idea about this. It's uh, it's it's the professionals in the health field that will have to follow. The problem is how do you warn people about a thing without starting to panic? Uh, if the fire starts in the theater. You want to alert people that there's a fire in the theater so that they will get out and not burn to death. On the other hand, once you say fire, you have a possibility that they'll be trampled to death trying to get out. So I, I, I think uh, it's, it's a rock and a hard place in that regard. Uh, but Bob Hines, uh, on Monday, President Obama came out and, and commented on the outbreak in the United States saying, quote, it is important for Americans to know the facts. And that is because of the measures that we put in place as well as our world-class health system and the nature of the Ebola virus itself, which is difficult to transmit, the chance of an Ebola outbreak in the United States is extremely low. At the same time, they are putting in some very strict policies and procedures on immigration, very strict policies and procedures on how hospitals are handling flu-like symptoms. Is there a contradiction here? No, I don't think so. I think the president is, is is right to be cautious. I think that the you know it's the it's, it's we're not having very many uh, cases here. We have brought people over here to treat them because we have these these new drugs that are that are that are, been, that are in testing in long term tests and they're using them immediately right now with the with the uh, approval of the government because. They seem to be working in most cases, and there are very few. There, there are very few people. I don't think there's, one, I think there's only one American who has been uh, one or two Americans who, who were always who were all in, in East in East in Western Africa who, who got the disease are all being treated, and some of them are, are recovered completely. Yeah, well, the, right now the latest number we have is is there are six confirmed Ebola cases in the United States, including a uh, photographer from your old employer, NBC. Uh, but Bob, I, uh, but none of them contracted here. No, you know that, no, that's correct, but correct. They all got it overseas. But to that, to that point, though, I want to go to Alan Moore. Alan Moore, we have Rand Paul. He has concerns. He's saying he wants to put U.S. troops in Western Africa as a front line to help prevent the expansion of the Ebola virus not only into our country, but into Western hemispheres. At the same time, Pete Sessions said uh, this weekend to CBS, uh, Representative Pete Sessions from Texas, the Republican, he said, quote, what is correct is that we treat the circumstances where we stop travel to the United States, not just from there, but also understanding that the African travel goes through Europe and other places, and we can have people visiting the U.S. That seems a little bit strong on both Rand Paul and Pete Sessions' concerns. Are they justified? Well, it's right to be concerned. They don't have the right answers. As has been said, there's half a dozen cases in the U.S. They have all, so far as I know, come in from 
from other countries. We have the capability, we have the public health and regular health infrastructure to identify, to isolate, and to track contacts. And this tracking of contacts is really important whenever there is an outbreak of some dangerous disease for which, notwithstanding Bob's comments, there is no cure, there is no medicine that is around in volume and that is known to work. There was an ex there a couple of experimental drugs that were given to the first two that came back. We don't know whether they worked. They don't there, there's a couple of other experimental drugs that are being tried. You only can try them when you have patients on which to try them. The place to try them is in, is in, uh, is in West Africa. Basically, what we do is we isolate and we provide nutrition and hydration and attention, but we, we don't have a treatment for this stuff. There's a whole bunch of money now being tossed at it, now that we know that tens of thousands are infected in Africa. But the reason it's a national security threat is not because we got a half a dozen people here and people die at a rate of around 60 or so percent if they're infected. The national security threat comes because it is destabilizing in all of West Africa and threatens to move beyond the shores of West Africa. They don't have public health infrastructure there that functions. That's why we're sending 3,000 U.S. troops, spending close to, to set up some field hospitals, spending close to a billion dollars to set them up, train people, and go into the communities to, to show folks how to deal with symptomatic family members. You only get this particular thing from folks who are symptomatic. We're trying to monitor better now at, at our at our borders. We're like and, and, and in schools in Texas of all things, high temperatures. And if somebody's got a high temperature, then we want to talk further to them. But Alan, let me just jump in real quick. When you, I mean, the virus itself. I mean, experts say this is one of the most deadly viruses known, with no cure and mortality rates that can reach 90 percent. But at the same time, we've found that it is. Uh, been largely isolated in Western Africa. It has been largely isolated in Western Africa in rural communities, and but at the same time, it's killed victims so quickly it doesn't have a chance to spread that quickly. At what point does America? What point does the administration look at the statistics versus the fear? No, no, we are looking at the statistics, and that's what scares the hell out of us. But it's the statistics in West Africa. It's not the statistics in America. If we can't stop this thing in America, <laughs> then we are all dead. But, 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 but America is not where the problem is, and it is, a, it is not America where the national security risk lies. That is in Africa, and it's not in rural areas. It's in the major cities in Liberia and Sierra Leone and Guinea. That's new. We've never seen that before. I mean, in Sierra Leone... They had a slum of several hundred thousand people, and they tried to keep people inside it simply so it couldn't come out. And all that did was expose people, those people inside to, to have even higher risk. We have broken infrastructure, and we're trying to do something that normally takes time very quickly because the time between exposure, infection, and death is a matter typically of weeks. Let me go to Denise Krepp. Denise Krepp, your thoughts. Okay. First of all, the, big, the boogeyman that everybody's thinking about is the uh, Spanish flu, the Spanish influenza outbreak that happened in 19, um, 1912. 1912. And 
part of what happened was that it crisscrossed the Atlantic and it crisscrossed the entire world because people were talking with one another. They were coming back and going back and forth into World War One. Uh, but the difference today, unlike then, was that we have the ability to track people. We have the ability in the science to see the symptoms and to be able to do the, you know, the connect the dots of who we talk to and who we work with. I agree with Alan in the sense that it is a destabilizing um, agent within uh, West Africa, but it's not only destabilizing impact there, but it's just, it's real life. I mean, if these folks are sick, they're not farming. They're not earning a salary. They're not working. There's electricity isn't being produced. And what's going to happen is everything has to be brought to them. And if we are bringing things to them constantly, that means that we are going to be working with them. And, and that's what the national security implication is, is how do we make sure that we are only bringing things right now to West Africa and this doesn't spread to such a point where we're going to have to sustain the entire continent, which is a distinct possibility if this gets out of here. Dan Lipner. Well, bringing that domestically, unfortunately, the, our, our first exposure to Ebola was fudged, to, to put it kindly, in, in, in Texas. That being said, the reason it's spread as much as it has in West Africa is they don't have the infrastructure that we do. They're, simply put, there are no bodies on the streets in the United States. In Sierra Leone and Liberia, there are. That is not going to occur here anytime in the near future. The only potential fear factor is if the if the, if the virus actually mutates and becomes airborne. At the moment, there is no evidence of that, but that is a legitimate fear factor. But thankfully, there are people out there that don't believe in evolution, so that's obviously not going to happen. <laughs> but Bob Hines, you know, when we hear Governor Rick Perry talk about suspending all air travel uh, to and from the United States from Western Africa, that unto itself seems like it could be logical, but it, it, is it really a reality that we can actually put into place? The governor of Texas is an unusual individual. Ah. <laughs> is that how you say bless your heart? <laughs> I mean, what it is. I mean, you know, he sticks his nose in everything just because he wants to stick his nose in something. I think it's silly. Alan Moore. Yeah, you're right, and I think it's silly. All right, Alan Moore. I think if you were the governor of a state that had the one guy who came in and didn't report accurately, and then you and, and you kind of mishandled it locally, you'd probably be all over this too. His answer makes no sense. But the biggest problem with it, is, there are two big problems with it. One, there isn't virtually no air traffic between the U.S. and West Africa. Everything flows through Europe. And it flows through multiple cities in Europe. So you would, to make this thing work, you would have to start, you'd have to either stop all European traffic or create a system that does not now exist that people could then get around. If you have a ticket that says, I'm starting in my Morovia, Liberia, flying to, flying to Ghana, flying to, to Frankfurt, flying to America, it might all show up on the ticket. But the moment that Liberians realize that's a problem, they will fly to Ghana, then they'll get a new ticket. Or they'll fly to Frankfurt and they'll get a new ticket. The other thing is you don't want to drive this thing underground. You want people to come forward and say, here's my symptoms, what the hell do I do? And that takes 
a public education initiative, which is, we know from HIV AIDS, is really, really hard when you have a country that not only has no public health infrastructure, but no effective communications infrastructure. But, but I mean, we saw this. We've learned some of this stuff, and and there's a and and, and this public education piece is but, critically but, important. But let me let me just go back. You brought up you brought up HIV and AIDS. I mean, there are some that believe that the outbreak of AIDS in this country. We're seeing a lot of the same kind of messaging, a lot of the same kind of uh, effects and reaction that we saw at the initial early, early stages of AIDS coming into the U.S. from Africa. It, it, is there a similarity here, Alan Moore? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a stretch. It's very, very tenuous because, because the diseases are so different in how they're, how they're transmitted in the incubation period, in in the level of risk, in the time frame that you have to deal with. As I said, I mean, with AIDS, if you're infected, usually it's six to eight years before you know you're even infected. Think about that. In the meantime, you and you're not going to necessarily be you, your infectious period. Your most infectious period was way back towards the beginning, when you had flu-like symptoms. In this, in the case of this, it's harder to get, but once you get it, it happens very fast, and chances are you'll die. Carl Tuman has joined us around the table. Thank you. Um, there, there was an announcement yesterday or this morning that I heard that the uh, uh, CDC has been asked to put some of its people in airports so that when people get off planes, certain people would be tested. And uh, or, or temperature taken or whatever, and uh, as a as a thing. The problem is the CDC doesn't have enough people to do this because of budget cuts. And uh, the other point I want to make, uh, and this is very important for the United States, there is an article. There's an article in the New York Times, another place, and in, in Wall Street Journal saying that if this country had a disaster, a real disaster, this started spreading this country, that we are not equipped to handle it. And I know from experience of taking people in to see people at HHS and talk about this problem, that the persons in HHS who are in charge of this don't want to handle it, don't need more to look at it. Denise Crap. I, I can say that there, there is a silver lining to some of this. Because of what happened um, about seven, eight years ago with SARS and flu, there is a large stockpile already of those, um, I can't think of another word to say gone, because I, I had it kind of shot at me a couple of times. Um, it, you know, what will happen is that they have this, it looks like a gun, but it shoots a, kind of a laser at you, and they measure your forehead by uh, your temperature. And that's what they do. I mean, that's what happened to me in several countries in Latin America as well as Asia, because they didn't want people to come in the plane. So what they'll do is the plane will land. They'll let you come off, they'll shoot the guns at your forehead, and those of you that pass get to go to the left, and those of you that fail go to the right, and you go right back on the other plane because they don't want anything to become an effect. And that technology is there, and that's what's about to be used. But Dan Lipner, when we talk about the ability for the American government to respond to something, should this get out of control, I mean, the, the one patient that came in from West Africa, uh, who's now in a Dallas hospital, was downgraded overnight 
from stable to back to uh, critical condition, it's it's a serious issue right now, and that's got to lead a lot of public uh, a lot of public uh, health and safety folks to take great attention as to how we can in fact respond if there were five, ten, twenty, even a hundred. Two parts to that. One is preventing other people from getting it, and the other part of that is curing people that have gotten it. The keeping people from getting it, we are capable of controlling. And this is, as to Denise's point, the, the once you're symptomatic, this is knowable. Um, that And you can respond to that and isolate those people from the general population. The curing people, this is Alan's point, this is much, much more difficult. Yes, there have been a, a, a not vaccines, but serums that have had some success, but no clear ability to produce them in large scale. Uh, that is really a question. And we, we can respond to that. However, I would also want to expand this a little bit to people's response to it and believing the government's idea, the government's ability to respond is there. It is there. We have a rather fractious government system state, local, and fed, but all of those three working together can, with emphasis on the can part, can actually respond to this and thus far have shown an ability to do so. The Texas issue was ham-handed, but it was a, a failure that was made public, and I have no doubt for any, any kind of future issues will be responded to appropriately. Congressman Al, uh, Carl Tuvin brought up the fact that CDC, the uh, National Institute for Health, and HHS have been pretty much cut back on their budgetary uh, obligations and the ability to, in fact, either educate, respond, or prevent Ebola from moving forward. Is this a wake-up call for Congress that we might have cut too close to the quick on this? I don't know whether you can wake up Congress, uh, frankly. <laughs> but <clears throat> there's... I think in both parties and both philosophies have this habit. They will cut back something that they don't value as much as the other side does. And then you run into a need for it. For example, under democratic administrations, we cut back on defense. And then all of a sudden, there's a need for more defense. And with, uh, with Republicans, it's usually in social health and other kinds of programs where they cut back. And then you have a need for it, and they, you get the same thing. So uh, Congress really needs, right now, to get some money to the agencies that we need right now. But it's, so you wish you could, they could get a lesson and level out their funding and but, Alan, Alan Moore, there are two agencies that we have not heard from that we thought might be in play in this. One of them, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the other one, the United States Trade and Development Agency. Uh, it, it seems that they should have a play or could have a play in this role if they had budgetary money. Both agencies have been cut back dramatically through sequestration. I'm amused at the notion of cutbacks somehow being key to all this. First of all, we do a crappy job of cutting anything back. If only, if only that were a problem that we cut back uh, in, in any kind of a systematic way, other than through the ham-handed uh, sequestration approach, which we may talk about uh, a little bit later, because Panetta talked about that. But, but let me just say about 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 the CDC. 
The last thing we're going to use CDC experts to do is hang around airports. What we may do, and we do have this technology, as Denise mentioned, is mechanically identify people with a high temperature. Some of the elementary schools in, in Dallas right now are using that technology because that's where there has this, this guy was, and he did have some exposure. If we do identify people with a high temperature, we're not, by the way, going to turn around and say, go get on another flight somewhere. We're going to say, step out of line. We need to talk to you. We need to evaluate you. We need to figure out what's going on with you. The, the, what we don't want, if, even if, 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 if they've just got the flu or some infection or something, we want to know that. And if they do, we think have Ebola, we're not going to put them back on an airplane where they will then possibly infect the crew and other people. We will isolate them. That's what you do with, with Ebola. You quarantine people. You don't just say, get away, go over there. You don't want people touching stuff. This, you, have to, you have to have physical contact with bodily fluids of sick, infectious, symptomatic people. And what you want to do is ID them and, and isolate them. But, uh, and, and we have the ability to do that, not because we, we want another 100,000 CDC workers. We have a public health infrastructure all over this country where we can deputize people to go and they don't need to be CDC doctors. They need to be public. They need to be nurses with some skill level, or even community health workers with minimal training for some of this screening kind of stuff. So before we think, oh my God, we've ruined the CDC. This is not what the CDC does. It responds with SWAT teams, whether it's domestic or overseas. AID will have a role in the training of health workers in West Africa because they do the on-the-ground development work of the U.S. government. USTDA, I don't see a role for them at all here. That's a small little agency that, that, that is, would not play a key role. But, but AID, on the other hand, can mobilize. AID is a major partner, as is CDC, in the fight against HIV, AIDS, and malaria all over Africa, they have a presence. And it's not like people are just gonna be anxious to say, oh yeah, I want some of that action. Um, it, 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 it is a fearful thing to go and, and, and get close. Denise Krapp, uh, I'm wondering if you could expand on that. <laughs> Denise Krapp. Denise Logistically, what they're going to do is they'll use the screeners from the TSA, they'll use customs officials that are currently at the airport and they'll be pulling in FAA because the folks that control the airports right now are it's a combination of TSA plus FAA. On the maritime side, they've already issued guidance via the International Maritime Organization, the Maritime Administration, and the Coast Guard have issued guidance on the maritime side saying if you have mariners then that are um, have symptoms, what they've done is they've kept them out on the vessel and have people visiting them and then they'll bring them in if that's what's about to happen. But that's what's happening on the maritime and on the aviation side. I don't know what's happening on the rail side because there is a lot of border traffic coming into and out of uh, Canada as well as Mexico, but that would be very similar to what they're doing. And they want to do this because you have to remember that the airports, some of which are not owned by the government, so the state and the local, some of them will be private. So they're gonna to have to be working Dan, with the owners and operators. Dan Lipner. Well, just taking this to a domestic politics item, 
it is somewhat ironic to me that we are now talking about this giant public health emergency and realizing that the government actually has a huge role in trying to keep us very safe from this potential epidemic. Not a minor role, not the government has no business being involved in health care, but it actually affects all of us, that there's a community issue at play here. Way, way to politicize public health. Carl Tubin, well, 30 I was, seconds. Why hasn't uh, anybody mentioned USAID at this point? Alan Moore? We just we did. Just did. No, Thank you. No, but <laughs> no, my, I think it's going back to my my comment is that we haven't heard a lot from AID on this, and that AID does play a significant role, as you said. Well, they, they, they've got to be involved. I mean, they're involved, obviously. They will, they will, they will be the foot soldiers. This is still a medical issue. So that's why you see uh, Tom Treaton, the head of CDC, as the most visible figure. And then you'll also see uh, Anthony Fauci, who runs the infectious disease uh, division of NIH. Those are the two major voices in in health, in public health, and the status of research. Um, when it, it, we're not hearing a lot of defense talk, but they're the guys who are going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to go over and set up these field hospitals. Um, and and uh, so. I think the fewer voices, the better. And there is some talk about having an, e an Ebola czar, because when you when you put together a billion dollar program to go overseas, and then you're gearing up in the U.S., maybe you need somebody who's in, in charge of the whole thing. All right. And with that, we're going to let that be the last word. And when we come back, we're going to change gears. Supreme Court was supposed to take on gay marriage, and uh, they kind of didn't. We're going to talk about that and the politics around the upcoming Supreme Court convening. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. By the way, it's happy hour. As we start our second hour, we're going to order our drinks, cut open our cigars, and have – oh, Bob, you're getting way too excited for this. <laughs> Alcohol just really perked you up. Thanks for joining us for the second hour, Bob. It's a cigar. It's a, oh, is that it? Okay. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. Chili's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics, live on Block Talk Radio. And we're going to shift gears and talk a little Supreme Court and the Supremes. The Supremes this week decided not to take on the issue of gay marriage as they refused to hear any cases on same-sex marriage from the lower courts. Wisconsin's Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and the State Department of Justice decided to stop all their legal battles against it. Uh, but this has caused a huge fight in and amongst both those pro-man and woman and those pro-gay marriage. But Dan Lipner is an attorney. When, when you saw this announcement come down, were you a little bit surprised that the uh, Supreme Court not so much went hands-off but pretty much shut it down? Um, I'm a little surprised that some of the analysis that I've seen has suggested that there's uh, court politics in play, that the five conservatives on the court, even though Justice Kennedy uh, splits time between uh, the left and the right, uh, and he's been the swing vote on the, the gay marriage cases, uh, but the, the other four conservatives are, are basically biding their time to see what the next justice they get on the bench is going to be, uh, either a liberal or conservative. Alan Moore, is this, is this a situation where they, they've struck down so many of these gay marriage uh, bans in so many states, they just see this as just taking up court time unnecessarily, that eventually this will go to all 50 states? Or are they sending a message? I think there's... there's 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 room for some humility here in assuming that we know what these nine people are all thinking. Justice Ginsburg, uh, a couple of months ago, was asked about this, and she said, I don't know that this issue is ripe yet for the court to take up. After all, all the courts of appeals decisions have gone one way. This may be something that 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 the appropriate role for the court is to simply wait for more states to speak or for two courts of appeals to be on opposite sides of the issue. That could still happen. That could happen this year. That would result almost certainly in the court having to step in and and address it. So I think that just assume we know how people think, how they would decide, what their thinking was, whether it was strategic, 
remember, all of this speculation is coming from court watchers, none of whom have ever served on the court. But it, 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 <laughs> Re- Rebecca Kaufman has joined us around the table. Rebecca, you know, the, the GOP has remained largely silent uh, as a party and as as the leadership of the party have gone on this subject, and especially after the court's decision not to take these cases, is this? Are, are we starting to see maybe a softening of the GOP role on this, or are they just waiting for the right opportunity, the right case, to push it in front of the court to have them hear this out? I think that there's so many ways to interpret this, and I think that there are some Republicans who are probably celebrating this. I mean, it's giving the states more leeway to make the decision before the Supreme Court, and, and for those for proponents of states' rights, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, the Republican Party is obviously very, very fractured still over the issue of same-sex marriage. We see a lot of young um, log cabin Republicans working within the party's network to bring this to the forefront of the agenda. Um, I don't necessarily see that happening yet, but this is a step in that direction for sure. Well, Bob Hines, as an attorney, we've seen a situation where some legal scholars, not many, have said that technically the Supreme Court may have just given constitutional rights to gay marriage in all 50 states by declining this, whereas, in fact, all they did is merely decline the opportunity to rule definitively one way or the other, or just definitively said we're not going to hear the case. Is there some subjugation to be looked at here? Can we read the tea leaves and saying, look, maybe their silence is giving a constitutional right to gay marriage? You can read almost anything you want to read because they've done nothing. But I think, as I think, I think Alan said, every decision of an appellate court has been consistent with the right to gay marriage. Until there is a conflict in that area, I don't see why the court should, you know, jump in, if you will. It seems to me they're doing the right thing, just as as, as Justice Ginsburg said, you know, everything let's see what how it works out. Carl Carl Tubin. First of all, they can at any time take up one of these cases if they if they so wish. The other thing is is that you know they, they've had some decisions which were very, very unpopular with the country and, and the populace. And this could be a situation where they're saying, why jump into this? Because if we make a decision against gay marriage there's going to be an uproar, and they know it. And and possibly, possibly the thinking is, you know, this is happening all over the place. Uh, this is maybe something we should not get into until, as, as Alan says, there might be a, a decision in a court that goes Con- against it. Congressman Al. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of merit to that. <clears throat> I have never... I would never have believed that this issue would move as fast in the direction that it has moved, as fast as it has moved. I wouldn't have believed it. Uh, You know, I think the civil rights people might have wished that they could have moved theirs as fast as this has moved. The result is, I think, that this may have been their last chance to stop it, if they were going to, Uh, because I think what... Carl said about uh, causing a, a real uproar, and it's going to be largely among the young people, because us old fogies, uh, you know, don't care that much about it. But the younger people seem to be very, very solid uh, in, in support. Rebecca Kaufman. 
Yeah, the biggest obstacle for gay marriage is the the social element, right? Because all the other incentives are in place of why we would want gay marriage legalized. If there's an economic incentive, it provides tax revenue for states that are currently strapped for cash because of federal regulations. And it also um, is a voting incentive. The, the disenfranchised gay Republicans, they want to come out for their party. They want to vote and they want to have a place and a voice of the people. So it doesn't surprise me that the ball is moving this fast. I think that we cracked the door open and now we're going to see it land open. Jim Lipner. Well, just to clarify first, uh, one thing the Congress now said that uh, the gay rights issue are civil rights issues and the gay marriage issue is a civil rights issue. I agree. And the fact that we now have 30 states where gay marriage is effect with not just effectively legal, it's legal. And as we've seen the demographics move and the public opinion has moved rather dramatically because all of the predictions of the sky falling, that families will be destroyed if gay marriage occurs, the only thing that's happened is, lo and behold, you have same-sex couples moving to neighborhoods, raising kids, cutting the lawn, and going to work. All of the doom and gloom that was predicted, none of which has happened. Well, the other thing that... Congress for now. You know, the, the, the typical attitude in years past is that uh, these are all immoral people off doing it. Now they want to get married. You know, before it was one night stands in little bookstores and what have you. And that everybody thought everybody thought that was the totality. What's the matter now? I we just have visions of you in Congress getting reports of like Times Square bookstores back in the eighties. Just keep going. Well, Giuliani, Giuliani cleaned, he, he cleaned all, all that up. Made yeah, it Disney right, World. He was a Republican. Yeah, made it all Disney World. Then he's crap. Oh, hold on. I'm talking I, I, I just wanted to finish it. And that that was that now we're finding that the, these evil, sinful people who do these strange things in the dark of night and behind bushes now want to get married, want it public, made public, want it, you know, suddenly... These are not evil people, and uh, as a result, an awful lot of the reason for opposing this is gone. Denise Crap. And many people in the administration are thinking, oh, thank God, because they have an attorney general that they have to confirm. So as long as the Supreme Court didn't put this on the docket, they don't have to write questions for the confirmation hearing. That being said, uh, I am concerned, though, that there could be another case, and it's probably going to come up next year um, because of the health of several of the current Supreme Court justices. They're not well. I mean, their majority of them are on the northern side of 80, which means that we are about to see a whole slew of Supreme Court justices that are about to come in. And given the time and the expense that is involved with um, nominating and then confirming these individuals, that makes the uh, these potential cases very dicey. But Dan Lipner, I mean, I hear what Denise is saying, and the the, the justice that that at least the left is most concerned about is Justice Ginsburg. She had a cancer scare. She survived it. She is doing well. Uh, she has made it fairly clear that she doesn't want to go anywhere anytime soon. So Obama will not be uh, President Obama will not be appointing her replacement. However. Uh, Justice Scalia, while as entertaining as he is on the court, and Justice Kennedy, uh, both are are not not spring chickens, 
and uh, there there is a question as far as them being around and who gets to appoint their replacement. But Alan Moore, I mean, we we've talked about the social mores of same-sex marriages, the old school versus new school. It's becoming largely acceptable, particularly in the larger urban areas. Uh, is it a fait accompli now that same-sex marriage is now part of the norm instead of the exclusion? Well, right now, with with the decision yesterday not to hear an appeal, I think it's 30 states and something like two-thirds of the American public for now are in states that 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 have or now must recognize same-sex marriage. Um, so it's clear that's where all the momentum is. Now, when we're talking about Justice Ginsburg, and I brought her up first, she also has said something that's, <laughs> that's very controversial. In, Which is? In, in, uh, especially with, with, with some um, women's groups, and that is that she has said of Roe v. Wade, in 1971, right. that in her judgment, the court moved too far, too fast. The country was moving. States were deciding uh, to allow abortion under certain kinds of circumstances. And the court jumped in, leapfrogged what the states were up to, discovered a privacy right in the Constitution that no one had noticed before. That's not correct. And, and, okay. Well, hold on. You get a chance. And... and, and and made a decision which many uh, many constitutional lawyers of all stripes think was overreaching at the time. And when, when Justice Ginsburg says, we went too far too fast, and she is also saying, let's watch what the country is up to, she's clearly making a connection between what happened back then and all the controversy that ensued when the court got ahead of the country, arguably, and I think it's true, and in this case where let the court catch up to the country if the, if the country's moving in a particular direction, do we need to jump in and try to stand in its way? Even if some of us think that there is good grounds to say, let states decide. We're moving beyond that very rapidly and, it, and, and, and that's where the country is is headed, and it looks like the court is just going to let that happen, unless and until we have we have conflicting decisions. Dan Lipner, appeals courts. Well, I want to clarify something that the, the privacy rights had been interpreted. It, it, it's from a long line of cases, that starting with Griswold v. Connecticut, which is what says that what happens between a person and their doctor is actually a private exchange. And that's what allowed for birth control to be legal in this country. That was contraceptives, yes, no, but, absolutely. But but that's that that's part Some of the line. That's part of the line think of cases. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, on, hold on. Point. Let's <laughs> that that line of cases and the privacy right, which is the the penumbra of rights that the Constitution dictates, line that where the, the constitutional rights privacy. And I know Alan's going to be shocked here. I'm personally glad to see that people read in this privacy right in the Constitution, personally, I'd rather see it explicitly stated. However, the precedent in the court has said there is a privacy right that has been read in over time. As far as the, the abortion being a political issue, and, and I would, would agree with your point that the court acting when it did, the views on abortion being either a privacy right or an actually a public health safety right, because abortion used to be a wildly unsafe procedure, which is what dictated state and local governments acting because more people used to die through the procedure than through actually 
having than than actually successfully going through it. That changed. Okay, Alan Moore, your response. No, I, I don't think that it makes a lot of sense for us to try to have a constitutional argument here. I think that the, the only question is whether there's any merit to the argument made by the heroine, Justice Ginsburg, that back then we moved too far too fast, whatever the rationale, and maybe we should learn from that in this particular case. But you're talking about, I mean, you know, allowing the court to catch up. You're talking about they denied. It's not, imagine, it's not the court catching up. It's the court watching the country and not injecting itself every time. But you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about they, they turned down uh, court hearings involving the state of Indiana, Oklahoma, Utah, Virginia, Wisconsin, and de facto because Colorado, Kansas, North Carolina, South Carolina, West Virginia, and Wyoming are all in the same judicial circuit. They now circuit. have multiple circuits. They're still in the same judicial circuits, rather. They still they now have to abide by the fact that hey, your ban does not stick. The court but, typically waits in many, many instances, not always, certainly. They could have taken up one of these had they chosen to do so. But otherwise, because all of these appeals court decisions were on the same side of the issue, there was no dispute among uh, any of the 13 districts. That doesn't that doesn't become a constitutional argument? No. No? no. 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 Okay. No. There has to be. All right, hold on, hold on, Denise no, Krepp. That, that's Common Law 101, and that is, you know, the court's going to wait for a dispute. Alan has said repeatedly, they're not going to come in until there is a dispute, and there isn't a dispute right now. If there is one, November, December, January, February, what Carl said, yes, they could pick it up and they could pick it up quickly, but they're not going to do it right now. Ken Buck says it comes from Texas. Bob Hines. They shouldn't do it now. Why? For the very reason we've been talking about. Every decision that has been made by an appellate court has gone in one one side. So until there's a until there's a dispute. The Supreme Court is wise to hold its fire and just re relax and wait until this thing works out. Re re we'll see it when it happens. Rebecca Kaufman. I agree with that. And what I'll also say is that if you look over the course of history at every civil rights success that we've seen in this country, you've had the same conversations, right? Wherein does the power lie to make this happen? Are we moving too fast? Is it too much too soon? These are conversations that, that we're going to have to have over and over again to get this through. And we should be comfortable with that. At the end of the day, the American public knows where it's headed on this issue, and I don't, I don't think there's any going back from it. I mean, it sounds like to me, from what I'm hearing at the table, that it's almost as if the Supreme Court is punch drunk regarding the, regarding the issue of gay marriage. Only because of the fact that they're hearing the same arguments over and over again, and the same ruling is coming down in both the appellate courts and in Supreme Court rulings, they're just saying, look, enough's enough. This is the new reality. Denise Crabb. Yeah, that doesn't make it some, hey, first of all, I'd love to see any of them drunk, um, but that's not going to happen. So it was a figure of speech, Denise. Scalia drunk would be a blast. Yeah, I know. I know. That would be kind of As I demonstrated, you can't use a figure of speech yeah, around this table. <laughs> I go, I go, they're too old. He goes, they're never too old. <laughs> <laughs> Denise, finish your, this, this is the part of the show where I lose control. Go ahead, Denise. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they're not punch drunk. They're watching and they're waiting. It's called patience. 
in this case, patience is a virtue. They want to see, and I'm willing to bet you're right, it's going to come out of Texas. See, what, and what, by the way, not only will it come out of Texas, but what are the grounds? And that's what's going to trigger the Supreme Court review. Go ahead, Carl Tubin. I hope it comes out of Texas in the next two weeks. I'd love to see it. Won't happen. Dan Lipner. The question now becomes is, what's going to be the deciding factor? What is going to have to be the argument on the other side for the Supreme Court to take this up? I'm just prepared to, to plant the flag to declare victory on this portion of the culture war that this isn't a left-right issue. It's, yeah. a, it's a young versus old issue, and even then it's been narrowed to a very small group of older conservatives that are but, really against But the question still stands, is what is the argument that could possibly come down that's going to be different than the eight or nine states that they refuse to hear? My, my prediction is somebody is going to do something horrific again in Texas, and some, some person, some, some administrative bureaucrat is going to do some wildly anti-gay action on the gay marriage front that actually forces the issue and if the, if the Texas Circuit actually moves in the same direction, then I'll be challenged. Denise Krepp? Supreme Court could take it up either on process or substance. So Dan's right, it'll be process, or if it's substance, it's going to be substance coming out of the state um, constitution. They'll try to find pick something up out of the state Texas constitution, and that'll be the problem. Well, I mean, it's already there in Texas. Te Texas uh, Governor Perry has said explicitly the Texas National Guard will not be following any DOD's rules on same-sex marriage. And that's what's going to trigger it. Because they, it, it, the National Guard either comes in under the president or comes in under the governor, depending upon what um, emergency order it, it is. If there is an emergency order, President Obama triggers the Texas National Guard, and Governor Perry says, thank you very much, you've triggered it, but they still have to abide by what I've told them, that's what's going to bring the Supreme Court in. Rebecca Kaufman. Um, I was going to respond to you, Dan, before you said that it was an issue of young versus old and that the flag has been planted on this issue. And I would actually disagree. I think that the, the ball is definitely hurtling in that direction. But I do think that there are a young group of evangelicals in this country who do firmly oppose same-sex marriage on the grounds of their religious beliefs. And I don't think that they should be discounted in this conversation. I think that they're an important voting block to, to bear in mind during this conversation. Go ahead, Alan, Alan Moore. Subject, I think that, that before we dismiss uh, the older folks on this, that, that Ted Olson and David Boyce, uh, the two guys who were uh, big opponents uh, in this country at a historic uh, a presidential election joined together to fight Proposition 8 in California. They succeeded. They're hardly young folks. So it crosses party. It crosses age. It is no, there is no question that young people are much more likely to favor same-sex marriage, but that doesn't mean that everybody agrees. And older folks are less likely, but that doesn't mean they all disagree. Congressman Al, what are you saying? I'm just saying, of course not every, you know, if, 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 as we discuss this, if we have to every time say, but not everybody in that particular group agrees, this is going to become a very dull program indeed. No, of course, of, there's diversity. Agreed, but at the same time, going off of what Alan said and going off of what Rebecca said, Alan Moore, I pose this to you, the strongest... The strongest sector that we see against this are not so much the religious right, but it's the re religious traditionalists that are about it. You could be Democrat and a pastor in Harlem. We're seeing a lot of urban 
urban African-American pastors coming out against gay marriage in these large urban areas. We're seeing a lot of your Church of Christ uh, organizational types that are saying this this is blasphemy, this is against the law of man. At the same time, though, we do see other religious organizations, such as the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians. The, the Church of England now allows gay, uh, you know, gay monsignors and gay vicars. Is this a matter of religion versus culture? Most Americans no longer participate in organized religion. <laughs> so I don't think we can attribute it all to religion. And you left out the Catholics, who officially uh, are in opposition, but who, practically speaking, tend to be all over the place. So yes, religion drives some people, but this isn't a pure religious issue and religious folks are all over the map. Yep. So I don't I just I don't think it's I don't think you can say, oh yeah, the religion is on the rise, on the decline, religious right, religious left. It transcends all of that and includes most Americans, whether they're believers or not. Rebecca Kaufman, you look puzzled. You look like you've got something prolific. No, no. Okay, that, that's easy. Okay. But that being prolific from the conservatives. Wow. Whoa. Really? Really? <laughs> really? You want to swing that bat? Go right ahead, counselor. Go right ahead. With that, I'm going to let this thing fester over a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Leon Panetta's new book, which apparently has got the Republicans just all happy and giddy like school children on the last day of school. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties.
political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Back Room. And just, you know, after our discussion about gay marriage in the Supreme Court and it being an old versus new, our newest addition to the show just looked to one of our elder statesmen and said, quote, you have an iPhone? As if he's technologically insane. That was great. He only uses it for Yeah, yeah. And it plays Candy Crush, apparently. That's all he knows how to use it for. I technology. Illiterate. Illiterate. But that was great, though. Her shock of, you have an iPhone? I've managed to be able to... A few things on the phone. Oh, that was classic. <laughs> Us liberals honor the senior citizens. Uh, right yeah, there. we do. We do. Yeah, yeah. We love our we love our gray beards. But you have an iPhone. Classic. Classic. Uh, with that, we're going to talk about another funny subject. Hey, guess what? Leon Panetta has come out with a tell-all book, and oh, by the way, it's got the Republicans dancing for joy. What possibly could Leon Panetta say? Oh, he's been giving interviews. He gave an interview to CNN where he pretty much talks about his disappointment of his former boss, Bob Hines. Leon Panetta is literally opening up the kimono on this and letting out some dirty laundry. Is is this the right time? Is this is this a, a jab at the president? No, I don't think it's Quite a jab. It's more than a jab. But I mean, look, we've seen a book uh, by uh, Mr. Gates, just uh, former Secretary of Defense, here. also. I mean, and here's a guy who's been former Secretary of Defense and a, and a CIA chief. He's a former Democratic uh, congressman. He's highly regarded on both sides of the aisle for years as a guy who's a, smart, who's a good and smart guy. And, and what he is saying basically is, in the White House, political decisions made by the White House staff are more important than anything else that goes on. And, uh, you know, no matter what it is, they win and everybody loses, and that's that is the worst thing you can possibly have in the White House. But the great thing about it is, as you're giving that explanation, Bob, Denise Krep is over there going, yeah, no. so okay, Denise. Yeah, I mean, come on, I was a political appointee in this administration for two and a half years, and that's exactly what happened. Every single time somebody in the national security staff or somebody in the White House would say, no, no, I'm smarter than you, even though you are truly the expert, but I'm truly smarter. I mean, I mean it, it, it sounds like to me, Dan Lipner, that the president's literally got himself surrounded by his trusted cabal and that this cabal is literally driving the policy that normally would have gone, oh, here comes Congressman Al, is literally driving the policy that one would give to, you know, cabinet-level officials. Well, what else would you call it? Well, Dan Lipner? Well, two things. One, there's one there's additional former that that was left off. Also, former chief of staff to President Bill Clinton. That one should echo a little bit longer as yeah. far as laying the political framework. But as far as the politics in the White House, I'm shocked that there's gambling in this establishment. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, uh, the, this is the second White House in a row that has had, and I, I know this firsthand from from this White House. I know it from several Republican friends from the, the from the from W's White House that the 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 that politics governing all seems to be a something new that people who have been in D.C. for a long time have not seen the political operatives, and unfortunately the political operatives were also fairly young political operatives, that seeing that the actual substance of policy decisions versus how it's going to play on the modern media 
how that's going to play out. And unfortunately, this is a trend that's not going to be changing anytime soon. Carl Tubin? I don't know why anybody's surprised because the uh, Atlantic has written some stories about Hillary, about the selections of, of campaign staff that was on the National Security Council. And we know from Hillary's book and, and uh, Gates' book that uh, <clears throat> when important decisions came up, he, he staff favored one position, others favored another, the people who really knew favored another position, and Obama went with the staff. Maybe he's now learning a little bit, and maybe he's changed a little bit, because in the last month, he seems to be on track and doing the right thing, both with ISIS and with well, let's talk about that real quick. Breaking news, CNN is now reporting the Turkish government is quoted as saying the border city in between uh, Syria and Turkey is about to fall. That is a huge gain for ISIS, a huge threat to Turkey, and a huge national security crisis that apparently Obama was handling so well I beforehand. I thought that the next lower third was Obama raises much. <laughs> so while this is all going on, Obama's offering. It, great, great it's campaign cycle. Great, it is midterm. Go ahead, Bob Hines. You know, what's, you know what's so interesting about that is the Turkish, I'm uh, the, uh, the the Turkish government is it's got as much interest in seeing FISA disappear as anyone. And here they are watching Kobana be taken by by the uh, by uh, the, the ISIS people. And they're right on the border watching it. It's amazing to me. I'm surprised. Dan Lipner? It's more complicated than that because there's still the pesky little Kurds issue and the Syria issue. Absolutely. And not to mention, this is a big matter for us. Turkey's a NATO ally. So them engaging is a different ball of wax entirely. So we have to be careful when talking about this. Yes, I want the Turks involved. I prefer their boots on the ground. Oh, yeah. However... We cannot ignore the complicating factor in the region as a whole. You know, long term, Bob the worst thing you can have is, is ISIS getting more and more land, getting more and more people. And getting closer and closer, getting closer, to, closer to Turkey. Closer Turkey. Go ahead, Carl Tuvin. I'm surprised that they're not trying to defend themselves. You know, first off, during the break, I had a little conversation with uh, Denise, and, and the fact is, is that Five or six years ago, <clears throat> they stopped their draft. Uh, number one. Number two, because of that, do they have an army that is trained to go over into Syria and to take the city back? Interesting. Could I, could, 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 could I get back to what the original Thank question you, was? Yes, Congressman Al. As I recall, I the question do. was uh, about the Republicans being so happy about this inquiry and so forth. Why are the Republicans happy? Leon Panetta criticized the same president that the Republicans have been damning every time they can possibly vote. Of course they're happy about that. I mean, there's no mystery there at all. Now, it's also important, I think, if, if you're going to take this seriously instead of just see it as a political football, I happen to know Leon Panetta pretty well. And he is one of the most honest, one of the most thoughtful political figures that I have ever known. He was that as a congressman, and I think he's been that in every position he's held since. So
So I think you take this very seriously, and that's not good news for the president. But I will tell you this, I tend to, I would tend to believe Leon Panetta's view of that because he's a guy who would not be critical of his president for personal reasons or for aggrandizement or anything. It's because he thinks mistakes were made, to coin a phrase. Alan Moore. Yeah, I agree with Al uh, on that. I know Panetta a little bit. He's been around this town a long time. He doesn't want another job in government. There was just a hint of a hint of a smear over here to my left about Panetta because he was once chief of staff, heaven forbid, to to Bill Clinton, which is a big time job. Well, that's but, a smear. But, Let me be but, clear on that. But there was just a little little hint of uh, <laughs> of guilt by association. Well, I am normally very opposed to writing books from former insiders about current insiders, current officials, while they're still serving. The only reason that I can see Panetta doing it now is because he wants to influence decisions in the next two and a half years. And if he can be reasonable, thoughtful about his criticisms, and I've both read what he has been saying and listened to him on, on the radio, I think that it is his hope. And he, he has said some very positive things about the president as well, along with we focus on the, the, the negatives and the mistakes. But he says, I think that his response in Syria and, and Iraq is the right thing. And I'm hopeful that he has learned from but, what I consider to be past mistakes. How does, he but how, wait, how does he say that at the same time he calls out the president and saying, you know, okay, he's made the right choices in Syria, but at the same time, in the same interview with CNN says, look, he made a mistake and he didn't enforce his own red line in the sand. Yep. He made a mistake in dealing with ISIS immediately on the forefront. And he made a mistake in telegraphing our he, options. Are you because the president a, needs to be perfect? He's establishing his credibility. He's saying, here's what happened. Here's what some of us recommended. And he, he hits very hard on the whole budget of 2011 that led to the sequester and the damage that's done to the Defense Department. And he says, but he's got time to make some decisions to fix some things. I don't yeah, see anything yeah, inconsistent yeah, with yeah. that at all. Congressman Al, then Dan If Alan is correct, that Panetta is really trying to move things in a direction that most of us at this table would agree with. It's not being helped by the Republicans having uh, victory rallies in the street uh, because it, it makes it political rather than a, a policy issue. And that's what I, I know Panetta. He's he's working on the policy. He's not working on the politics. Dan Lipner? Well, a couple of things. One, all things can actually be true in this case, the politics and the policy. So Leon Panetta publicly criticizing the president in this book can also, in theory, help a, another hawkish Democrat assume the White House next time around. And with the Republicans right now seemingly taking the bait, Parading, saying, absolutely, absolutely. If only there were another contender in the administration at the time arguing these other positions, which in this case there are. This could actually be political jujitsu working very well for this other Democrat that hasn't announced yet. Rebecca Kaufman? I don't 
about that theory. I think that's largely speculative, but but I don't think it should come as a surprise that Republicans are capitalizing on this. I want them to. This is the third administration official to step forward with negative revealing facts about this administration, um, and deservedly so from all that we know. It's 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 not a competent administration, and we have lots of insiders coming out and saying that. Except Congress the president isn't running again. You know, I mean, your your point is well sure, taken. We have, we have a lot of um, midterm um, implications. Midterm implications, absolutely. A lot of people tying themselves to Obama. Hillary Clinton is tied to Obama, whether she wants likes it or not. That's that's how it's going to go in twenty twenty. Carl Tubin. Well, I don't think the Republican. Dancing for joy. Let them dance for joy. They have done this, as you said, for six years. And and <clears throat> uh, the world has gone on. The election has gone on. Uh, I was depressed over the weekend because I saw no way that we were going to take the Senate uh, and, and we'll probably lose the House and the Republicans are jumping up for joy. And I wake up this morning and guess what? The polls are a little different, and uh, and the president has a 67 percent approval for what he's doing in ISIS. What? Yes. Where did you see that poll? On Morning Joe. I would question that. I, 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 question is that true? Right. Yeah. 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 The, the, number, the numbers that I came saw out. It. He saw it, and it's true. I would love to see that number. Well, the what? Well, you got to get up early in the morning. Well, God knows that doesn't happen. It's one issue. His, his overall approval ratings haven't changed. Right. No. But I would. I just want to say I feel sorry for Carl, who's not getting any sleep. Right. Oh my God, he's, he's, he's up watching Morning Joe way too early. About, I, I mean, I'm worried about a heart attack. Yeah, no I kidding. Know. Denise, carry yourself. Bro. Okay. Denise, Have some drinks. Denise, Denise crap. All right. The drinking me, age. Well, let me bring a moment of levity. Um, Several years ago, I was uh, I was shopping in Harrods, one of my favorite stores in London, and all of a sudden I saw these these gentlemen in suits, and then I saw their the wires from their ears, and I started looking around. I'm like, wow, this is kind of interesting. And, and lo and behold, who is it? It's Leon Panetta. He had taken over the Christmas department of Harrods, and I have to say, because I was being nosy. And looking at his purchases, he has excellent taste in holiday gifts. <laughs> right. Thanks. Thank, yeah. Out of all of this, this is what you bring to the table. Thank yes. you, Denise. Yes. And what, Thank and, you. And what political people is he trying to do with those holiday gifts? I know. That's right. Who are they for? Right. Right. Okay. You know what? With that, I'm just going to go. We'll, we'll, oh, good Lord. I'm going to go to my favorite part of the show. This is Tell Me a Story, where we talk about Denise. The latest innuendo, latest scoops, latest inside the beltway and out. What do we got? Tell me a story, Congressman Al. Well, I'm going to repeat myself. I, I think that... Uh, Did you already say it's this show? What? Did you already say it's this show? Everything I say, you make into a joke. You I'm know? sorry. That's not, I'm sorry. And, and what really pisses me off is I don't understand the joke. <laughs> Neither is the rest join of everybody. Us, join us. Yeah. If it makes you feel any better, we have not a clue either. <laughs> Congressman Al, tell me a story. Oh, let me go around. Okay, Bob Hines, tell me a story. It looks to me like the um, the, the races in the Senate are tightening. 
The racists in the Senate? Are... No, the racists. The racists. the Senate. They've been working out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we need to enunciate more clearly. You've got to hear more clearly. <laughs> but it's, it's getting very interesting. Uh, a lot of money has gone into the Democratic side in the last six weeks, and they, it, it shows in the in the polls. And at the same time, it's, uh, in the, it's, the Republicans have uh, started their own efforts against Trump. I still think the Republicans will win the Senate, but it looks to me uh, it's a little bit tighter than it would have been uh, a few weeks ago. Denise Krepp, tell me a story. Well, as you all know, my husband's running for Congress here in the District of Columbia, and he debated Eleanor Holmes Norton last week. Eleanor, when introduced to my husband, said, oh, you're the ghost guy. You are running for Congress so you can sell books. Well, Eleanor, no. My husband is not running for Congress to sell books. My husband is running for Congress so he can beat you and actually do something productive for the citizens of the District of Columbia. Wow. All right. Wow. Equal that was actually news. <laughs> thank God, thank God we don't we're not regulated by the FCC because that equal time thing would suck. Yeah. Uh, Carl Tuvin, no, tell me a story. Well, I thought I thought that this was going to be a very very close election, and that we wouldn't know about it for three or four days, maybe a week after us, so who has what and, and what's going on. But there's something happening in the ele- in the electorate, and and whether uh, <clears throat> it's the president and, and what he's done and how he's performed in the last four or six weeks or something else, uh, things are things are changing. And uh, for my party, I hope that we don't peak before the election day and that this, this is a trend that will we'll keep up. I know some of you around the table do not want that to happen. Mm-hmm. But it could. And uh, <clears throat> I still think it's going to be close. I think some of these races are going to tighten up. But it's going to be a very, very interesting election. I race. want a pink unicorn, too. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Kaufman, tell me a story. Well, I hope what Carl said doesn't come true. And I personally have had all my attention focused on Colorado, which people have been saying is, what happens in Colorado is going to be demonstrative of 2016 and how 2016 is going to That's happen. not true. You have to go to the I-4 corridor in Florida for that. <laughs> I, don't I don't know about that, but I was in Denver a few times over the past few months, and I am very excited about what the Republican Party is doing out there. I'm very excited about the way um, the GOP is moving the ball out there, and I think that we I, – I agree that 2016 can be – Colorado can serve as an indicator for 2016. Oh, interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, last week at this time, we were focused on the uh, the fence jumper at the White House and the the now former director of the, of the Secret Service was up on the hill, and we were trying to figure out, so what happens? Does she go? Does somebody go? And then after she testified... We we learned that not only did the Secret Service give bad information about the fence jumper, how far he got, and, and, and this notion of using restraint, and where he was caught inside the White House, inside the door, or, oh, actually, near the green room. Then, lo and behold, we learned that a mere 10 days earlier on a visit to the CDC, 
the president was on an elevator surrounded by Secret Service guys and a for-hire security contractor who was a convicted felon with a gun who was taking selfies of himself and the president, and nobody stepped up. Nobody did anything. Um, and once once they questioned him afterward, he got fired. Um, it was a, a, the final Keystone Cops episode. I certainly don't blame the president for that, but I do say that that the director had to go, and God forbid something would have happened. And hopefully, hopefully, the Secret Service can learn from these horrendous embarrassments um, and get their get their act together. Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Leaving the world of politics a bit, but still the diversity of voices around the table. College football on Saturday had something interesting occur. Uh, they, they they had a, a I forgot which station it was, but had Katy Perry showed up as one of their celebrity voices to predict who is going to win which game. And lo and behold, in the vein of Jimmy the Greek, for those of you who are, who are old enough to remember Jimmy the Greek, uh, Katie the Perry picked nine out of ten games on Saturday. And including there, Oklahoma and Arizona? Including it, yes. What? Katy Perry did a phenomenal job. So d- d- diversity of voices is a good thing. Yay. We're applauding Katy Perry, who pretty much you know might what? have just what? pulled it out and said they have pretty uniforms. We're applauding this. Yes. What does Katy Perry have to do with diverse voices? Good question. The, 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 the white men behind the table. No. What's that, Congressman Al? It occurs to me that. <laughs> Remember when when Nelson Rockefeller won in California surprisingly because it was there was great worry about the fact that he had divorced somebody and married somebody else, and when when and that was going to defeat him in California and he won, <clears throat> and someone said it just proves that the public's memory uh, is. Uh, is short, that this wasn't a matter of public morality, it was a matter of public memory. They didn't remember this fight going. And also, uh, that makes me believe that we're not going to hear a lot about the health care bill in the, in, the, in the coming election. Uh, no. and, and, and she says that the Republicans are going to bring it up. I think, uh, I, I, hope, just I, I hope they do. <laughs> I was just watching her shake her head. She no, she didn't just shake her head. She came out and said no. <laughs> oh, well, that's what Republicans do. Oh, okay. Uh, good point. There's that. <laughs> yeah, we say no to I, government. That's I, exactly I, right. I made my point badly, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pull an Allen and continue. We call continue this. It. We call this Tuesday. <laughs> uh, with that, uh, we've got to get, we've got to break a little bit earlier. We're going to leave you with the social sounds of Duke Ellington, as we usually do. But on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krepp, Carl Tuvin, Rebecca Kaufman. Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, I want to say special shout out to our former intern and former associate producer, Eric Thomas, who's here in the house. Good to see you, Eric. Keep those grades up. Go be a red coat at Congress. And uh, also a special shout out to Yarden Kakon, our associate producer, down at the University of Florida. Georgia Southern still beat them, sweetheart. And 
Uh, go Hurricanes. Go no no we're not go doing Hurricanes. we're not doing college shoutouts. We we're get, not doing college shoutouts. Can we shout Hurricanes. out for the Seahawks? No no no. There will be one shout out and that will be to our home team Washington Nationals. 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 That's the Nationals. So my story is on this closing is somebody in the dugout on Mon- on Sunday night should be shot for the decision to pull out uh, the pitcher who was pitching, by the way, a complete game, eight and two-thirds innings, and you pull him out after a walk. Cost us the game. Dumbest move in Nationals baseball. In you, you left out his previous game with a shutout. Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. No, his previous was a no-hitter. No-hitter, not a no shutout, no-hitter. wrong in your conclusion. <laughs> what? Completely wrong. What, he should have been pulled? He should be. It's up to the manager to decide. He had just given up a near home run to the. To he the guy he walked, walked the guy. He, he walked, walked the guy right after the long foul ball. And it's yeah. the end of our oh, Thursday yeah. sports show. It was nine innings later that they come on, the come on. In Baltimore, the night before, the the Baltimore manager pulled his pitcher out, put a young guy. In Baltimore in. won. Put in a young guy in, and he struck him out. All right. With that, I'm your I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We'll be back next Tuesday for our sports show, Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. Bob, you're missing your cue. The place to be. You can follow us on the web at www.backroompolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. At Backroom Politics, and you can email your questions to me, Justin Russell at backroompolitics.org. We'll see you next week. Bye bye, America.